Hello there, welcome to another Riot Act Reviews where I, Stephen Hill, yes that is me, and he, Renfrey Deadman. Hello Renfrey. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm alright. I'm just going to sip my water before we carry on. I'm about to talk about one of my mm. favourite bands, so I'm very, very excited. Alright, don't spoil it, don't spoil it. You know us, we're from the Riot Act podcast. We do a weekly show about music, alternative music, if you like. I mean, whatever, whatever makes you happy, I guess. Call it what you want, which yeah. is music that we like, basically. We have designated an entire show to finding and talking about music that we think is essential or interesting or commercially viable or many a thing. There could be many reasons for us um, deciding to pick an album that we want to cover on this particular show. And Renfrey's already spoiled it. Today we're just doing an album because it's pretty much one of your favourite bands ever, isn't it, really? I, th- I think this is a band who more than deserve uh, an entire episode dedicated to them as well. Uh, we have mm. an interview with um, James and Chris uh, from the band as well, which will be at the end of this uh, review, so you can check that out as well. Stick around for that. We'll try and make this short and sweet so you can get to people who are much more interesting than the <laughs> two of us. Today we're going to be looking at Where Myth Becomes Memory by Rolo Tomasi, the, thi- the, the sixth studio album from the eclectic sheffield post-prog hardcore metal screamo band i think even i'm not sure i've nailed that as a descriptor uh, well none of them are based at sheffield anymore so that's definitely not true um <laughs> well, they not started out in sheffield though right they started out in sheffield yeah um then you uh, you can take the guys out of sheffield but you can't <laughs> take the sheffield out of the guys sure um i i mean rollo tomasi at this point are Rolo Tomasi they're they're not really um anything other than themselves I think that is what something that I absolutely love about them I talk about identity all the time and having a strong identity and the moment you hear Rolo Tomasi come in you just go well this is Rolo Tomasi I think at this point the big influences are um I suppose the elevator. It's off already. Unbelievable. It's just off, just straight away. No, no just off, aren't you? Well, off you you, you said it's that accurate. I just said uh, I think I think the <laughs> elevator pitch is like Dillinger meets neoclassical type stuff, and actually plonked together in a in a way that works. <laughs> Even though those mm. two things seem really really disparate, but yeah. So this is the follow up to 2018's pretty fucking amazing Time Will Die and Love Will Bury It album. That album was a very personal, often heartbreaking listen, I think. Yep. Uh, and it is a genuinely brilliant record. Although my notes here say, Renfrey, you are a massive fan of this band. Probably more of a long term, well, certainly more of a long term fan than me. Tell me why they're so great. Um, but you've already done I that. Sort of so I'm going <laughs> to so skip on. I'm going to skip on and uh, I'm just like, do you think they've evolved a lot since their early days, Rolo Tomasi? Goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think they've evolved an awful lot. I mean, back in the early days, there certainly wasn't any of that neoclassical element at all, I would say. They were kind of put in with that. Do you remember the Nintendo core scene? Yes, I do, unfortunately. (laughs) And, you know, they did share DNA with that scene, certainly on hysterics maybe a little bit on cosmology as well but no they've evolved uh, i i would say there's been a, a relatively strong evolution from every single album um i suppose i don't really want to start with what could be perceived as a negative it isn't a mass- massive negative to be honest but one of the f- things that struck me when i first heard this record is the evolution between this album and the last one is one of the smallest ones that they've ever had if i'm totally Mm. honest but 
I think the reason for that is because in with the last, I'm going to say with the last two records, with Grievances and Time Will Die, I think they have really found their core sound and what it is that they are trying to do. And it is so uniquely them that, of course, you're going to get to a stage where that evolution between each record does begin to slow down, diminish. I want to make it clear that there are still new things on here that i've never heard them do before but in terms of say from astraya to grievances where the evolution was you know huge as an example um i think the evolution is smaller here but it's it's still there i think do you agree with that does this does this sound uh, different to time will die not massively but mm. then i think that's all right really i think that's fine i think that's yeah. all right because i think um i think you've kind of already nailed it really by saying Hello. when you are this unique about and again like you know we reviewed corn which is a very different band and has had a very different <laughs> career but we reviewed the last corn album we said like you know if you're really really good at doing something yeah and i think this album is certainly more eclectic than the last corn record i mean corn are essentially good at doing they used to be good at doing one thing and then they got they changed to being very very good at doing another thing and you shouldn't really expect corn to be musically kind of evolutionary at all but i think a much like and again we just reviewed black country new road and i think they say much like black country new road um there is so much to mine still i think from time will die and love will bury it sonically um that if you continue to mine that even more on this album which i think broadly speaking i don't think it's the same album at all no. doesn't strike me as being you know exactly the same as a record certainly in terms of it doesn't feel like as sad a record as time will die and love will bury it doesn't feel like it's sort of as heartbroken a record i don't think well i i i, I in a in a way i know thematically it isn't because um uh did you read the bio for this album steve yeah, I did. Yes. Yeah. What did you think of the bio? I, I thought it was pretty good, actually. I thought it was. Uh, oh, did you read it? Did, did you write it? Did you? I might have. Read. I knew you did. <laughs> might have read I knew it. you did. <laughs> you can see, you can tell a Renfrey Deadman bio when, <laughs> <laughs> when an entire line is like one word. <laughs> Renfrey using like Welsh towns as like his ways to describe. <laughs> No, uh, I did. You've got a very unique writing style, Renfrey. Oh well, and, thank you. Uh, I, that's a compliment, as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, no, no, it, and no, it is. And um, yeah, you know. Um, yes. So the reason why. Uh, I well, said you that, want me to just be, you want me to like <laughs> no, go? No, 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 no. You wrote a really good bio. The is reason I said wanted? that wasn't for nepotism or anything like that. It was because <laughs> it was because um, uh, in the bio it mentions a brilliantly mm -hmm. written bio. It um, it mentions that uh, it, this is it's formed a sort of the third part of a trilogy a sort of thematic trilogy mm -hmm. and um you know they didn't set out to write a trilogy when um uh when they set out to write grievances and even time will die i think eva kind of hit upon the idea of this trilogy idea as they were putting this album together but that came through the lyrical themes and this album is about um rebirth after difficult events so yes mm. your perception or, that as, or as you put it a barrage of excitement of noise hope dreams and feelings of optimistic caution it's astounding <laughs> yeah that's that's <laughs> yeah. me yeah. <laughs> I mean, spoiler alert <laughs> that's that that sounds that sounds like a good buy uh anyway <laughs> um yes so uh 
yes so your instincts that this is generally generally a happier album i think are bang on correct yes i i don't even want to say happier yeah happier right? doesn't say, sound quite right but more I think optimistic there are more there are, yeah there are more I, there's uh, the odds there are Rodo tomasi are good at doing some really euphoric things they really in are. their music mm. and on the last record those euphoric things felt those euphoric kind of those skyscraper moments felt kind of Tempest they felt a bit like, of melancholy yeah they were kind of gray they were looking up to this you know hitting that skyscraper chorus and then hitting a gray cloud yeah not, you know, not, not a criticism does, but yeah I, not I criticism see yeah, as yeah, yeah. a stylistic choice yeah, that yeah, they yeah, have yeah, made yeah, yeah. um and i mean yeah, and I don't. I, I do feel like this is the euphoria is slightly more. Euph- I don't want to get the, give people the impression that this is a fucking you know happy album like you know no, like a, a super fucking like hill clicking. We're in the money <laughs> kind of album. Like, it's not no, that, no, no, but it is happier. But, but the the kind of the euphoric you know fist pumping moments do feel actually more fist pumpy yeah i guess yeah but it's also really really fucking heavy i mean you know that's what? why you don't write bios for rollo tomasi because you go fist pumpier <laughs> well i wouldn't write that would i <laughs> sorry carry on that sounded far harsher than <laughs> i meant it to sound <laughs> go on go on i just think okay let's get into i'm album. excited I think i'm excited because we're reviewing it starts album. really really lovely i mean eva yeah. has got a beautiful singing voice which is quite rare in metal and hardcore and whatever you want to call it, to have a genuinely great singing voice. I mean, look, you know, there are a lot of people in hardcore and metal and, you know, rock music and stuff who can sing. But she actually could probably get away with not doing that screaming lark. But here we are. Oh, I, what she does. I wouldn't. She could. She could bin it off. I, I agree. I, I, I wouldn't like that because I like the contrast between the two things. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, she has a beautiful singing voice and uh, it has developed fantastically over, I think, particularly these last three records. There were, you know, there were clean vocals from the beginning, I think. But certainly her confidence in her clean vocals has become so much more clear and precise in what she's doing to the point now where there are actually quite a few what i'm going to call uh ambient chilled out purely clean vocal tracks on this record i think there are at least three Um, three, yeah yeah three or four or something something like that but almost always is the the first one of those and yeah this is a a string to their bow which they really which they started with time or die in terms of doing like an entire ambient cleanly sung track and they've really embraced that even more now with this record which i think mm. is great because it makes the contrast when stuff does well get i was gonna heavy. say mm. we're getting so much more exciting when it, that shit does kick in i Chef's mean kiss. the third yes. song mutual ruin is absolutely incredible incredible symphonic parts like crushingly savage riffs vocals absolutely scabrous jazz drumming minimalistic piano all kind of building and swirling and dipping and rising and coalescing together in such a beautiful way and i think that would actually fit rather well in one of their bios what i've just said but you know that's just my opinion um that was good i liked that yeah yeah. so fuck you anyway um but yeah it's an absolutely brilliantly brilliantly 
exciting song. Mutual Ruins, fucking fantastic. Yeah, absolutely brilliant song. And and it and it also goes into Labyrinthine, which I think is as good probably like yeah i think and it's made up of that reminds me of the the blood brothers used to have like little organ parts on that and there's a bits on that that i'm like oh this reminds me of the blood brothers which is that's a great shout i was listening to the blood brothers the other day what a fucking great band they were um yeah um i I, i'm gonna give a shout out now i talked to chris a little bit about this but um the guitarist chris kayford has really you can tell that he's spent a lot of time trying to get different sounds out of his guitar. And we were talking about this quite recently. We were talking about the gent scene quite recently for a different um, for a different episode and how, you know, all the guitar sounds sounded the fucking same um, mm-hmm. from band to band because, you know, they're all just using the same patches that everyone, that these patches which are just put out that everyone can use. It's basically, basically like factory settings for uh, yeah. guitars now. And um chris went into quite a lot of uh he spent a lot of time creating these really crushing guitar tones for this record and making them different from song to song and the difference that that makes in terms of keeping your interest up throughout the record is absolutely immense when you get into songs like drip and prescience later on the record i mean those songs are so fucking heavy and it's due to a number of factors but i think the fact that chris kept fucking with his guitar sounds and fucking with his guitar tones and making them sound different is a huge part of the reason for that and and you know more bands should be doing that rather than just dialing in i don't know Meshuggah's guitar tone uh which is <laughs> what a lot of bands do now but yeah yeah i, I think that's great about that's something yeah, i love it, about rollo it's fucking brilliant and I, I feel like every time they build something when they build upon these dynamics they build upon them really really sensibly when we get to go back quickly to mutual ruin when you get to mutual ruin you're three tracks in and it's already great and it's you know it's quiet and you know kind of crystalline and cinematic and then it gets a bit heavier and then it gets to that and you're like fucking hell you're just layering and layering and layering upon stuff and you know like it's so dynamically satisfying so much of this record you know the the like you mentioned the riff on labyrinth i think you you mentioned um uh close uh, you mentioned drip which is like gajira heavy Mm -hmm. it's like fucking gajira and i think maybe that's something that people don't necessarily i mean i i I certainly didn't associate relative massey with like death metal gajira shit but the riff on that is breathtaking they can do that if they it want is to yeah. fucking breathtaking yeah. and it has that drip is the one with that like drone isn't it i've already said this in a metal hammer review but it has that kind of skynet styled mm. drone thing and it's so yeah. ominous and oh it's frightening it's proper frightening um yeah. there is a fair yeah. bit of kind of 80s i mean i know that we mentioned the 80s synth quite a lot but you know prescience has got a bit of 80s synth i think there's a synthy shimmering part on drip mm. um i wanted to say by the way um james and eva having the sort of vocal trade-off on the song closer i thought was really oh, good beautiful. as well it's only kind of just a little tiny nod to that kind of vocal back and forth but it's really really good the fact that they do that like once and they just don't do it for the rest of the album is mad but like Closer fine. Is, a, is another one of the ambient tracks and it's an absolutely beautiful song yeah i mm. think they've already released it as a single but it's, it's a f- really fantastic song and breaks up you know it comes between labyrinthine and drip and breaks that up absolutely beautiful beautifully i, I think one of the strengths of roller Tomasi in 2022 
uh, in recent years is they really know how to use dynamics as you sort of already alluded to but also how to build up to it sort of gradually they 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 don't kind of they have trust in the listener that they will have the patience to get there over a, a long period of time they're not scared you know they're not scared and going oh god if we're not doing something loud and heavy in the next minute then people are gonna like stop siren. being interested like that siren yeah, yeah. uh <laughs> if we're not do if we don't go really heavy super quickly then people are gonna get bored you know they have the patience to build up to those things and that's something i think that makes them even more powerful as a result mm. there's some cinematic piano chords on stumbling which really sounds like some sort of marvel universe uh sort of i don't, I don't watch the marvel films but anyway <laughs> they sound like they sound like some sort of film score type thing and it's very very delicate and i'm just imagining like it's got a kind of ludovico einaldi sort of thing to it Ooh. and and i was like just imagine if that was the only thing they did they'd be on john lewis adverts and making multi-platinum selling albums but they actually try and make varied art the fucking idiots <laughs> you morons why are you not trying to just just do that if i was look the temptation i mean the, the, the thing i listened to that and i was like this is so good you could if actually be making just, money yeah if you just did this you could actually be like famous really really famous but you fucking shout all over it and play massive guitar riffs and stuff you fucking idiots why are you pandering to these metal pricks i can't wait to send this to them yeah they're gonna love it <laughs> well look i mean you know steve's being the, facetious like, to be clear. i am i mean to be very very clear <laughs> I, they're much better for being the band who they are oh, and it, i think it says more about our culture mm. that mm. you know that they're not as big as like london grammar when they could do london you know, like shit an album of that out on the basis of this album they could shit out an album 10 times as good as the last London Grammar album I, in their fucking sleep. I, I, you know what? I like London Grammar, but I agree. I, I do agree. And I think that's a very good point. Like sometimes it, it isn't just, oh, let's put quiet bits in for the sake of dynamics. It's really clear. I mean, I know this for a fact because I've spoken to James on it, you know, on several occasions about our mutual love for the likes of Oliver Arnolds and like Steve Reichs and so on and so forth those kind of artists those modern neoclassical artists and I know that he's really big into that kind of stuff but the, it's obvious that they really understand that stuff and really know what they're doing with it you know rather than it just being like we should probably have a quiet bit here to break up the momentum they mm. i kind of feel like i'm not strictly saying that they should do this because i like the dynamics and the fact that it goes from place to place but if rolo tomasi said we're gonna release a an ambient ep or or our next record is going to be like just ambient stuff i would be, i would be very excited to hear that because i know they mm. would do it really well um yeah. I, I i i like the mixture and i would like them to continue doing that personally but at the same time if they were to do that i know that they could pull it off 
And it sort of circles right back round to the start at the end as well. It's um, you know, it kind of nods to I think the the last track, um, the end of Eternity kind of nods to almost always the first. So it's a, a spherical album. Renfrew, we love a we love a spherical <laughs> In album. Words of Chris Morris, yeah, spherical. Uh, yeah, album. and I, I I think this is a really a really great record. I think people who loved the last record who maybe got on board. I mean, I feel like I properly got on board with Relo Tomasi yeah. with that last album. And in that respect, like if you did were, were like me and you got on board properly with that last album, this, I think broadly speaking is a similar esque record. Um, I think if you're a long term fan, they're in the absolute form of their career, aren't they at the moment? This is the, as good as they've ever been. I, I mean, I think so. I, I, I certainly, this last trilogy of records, my, my absolute favorite, I think remains grievances personally, but in terms of mm -hmm. like objective critique, it's really difficult to kind of separate these three records in terms of quality. I think they're all fantastic. And taken as a trilogy, I've actually sat down and listened to all three records, like back to front, multiple times actually um because i'm such a nerd um but i have done that a few times and it's just an astonishing thing to do when you kind of sit down with all three records and go through the whole thing and it even yeah. though it wasn't intended to be a trilogy from the beginning yeah maybe it's me putting things onto it i don't know but i kind of it does feel trilogy-esque now and mm. what that means in terms of like are they going to go on to do different things now i don't know i mean i don't think they know themselves i did ask a little bit about that in the interview which is coming up um but it really is an astonishing piece of work as per i mean i suppose that's not very surprising coming from me because i have wanged on about how much I adore Rolo Tomasi for the majority of my professional career um, so but they continue to release fantastic records there isn't a single Rolo Tomasi album that isn't good at, at the very least and they they have been getting better and better as they go on and and this is another great record which does show signs of progression um, but doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater in any way shape or form it's it's yeah it's excellent i'm really pleased that yeah. you like it as much as you do do you think you like it as much as time will die or more definitely or? i do i yeah yeah i think i would put them completely on par right yeah i think that, that's probably accurate honest. yeah yeah i mean if you're a fan you're gonna love it I and mean, if you if you if you aren't then i would say now is a very very good time for you to invest in roller tomasi oh, and become it. a fan of the band i mean basically what i'm saying is you might want to you might want to consider listening to this record everyone yes that's what I would say. I think that's fair. Anyway, there you go. Um, Where Myth Becomes Memory by Rolo Tomasi is out on the 4th of February. If you're listening to this podcast before that, if you're listening to it after that, then stop what you're doing after what you're about to hear and go and listen to it. But what you're going to listen to right now is Renfrey chatting to... Who is it you were chatting to, Renfrey? I spoke to James, James and Chris from the band. Here's what Renfrey had to say to them about this record. Okay, so joining me over Zoom, I have James Spence and Chris Kayford from the inimitable Rolo Tomasi. How are you chaps doing today? We're doing good. We're doing very good. Nice to speak to you. Yeah, it's lovely to speak to you too. Um, James, I'd like to start with you, um, first of all. Uh, can you tell me where Myth Becomes Memory evolved into this third part in... Uh, what you've told me before was an unintended trilogy of albums that began with Grievances and continued with Time Will Die. Where did that come about, it becoming the final part of this trilogy? I think it was something that was 
largely picked up on by Eva, I think as she was reaching um, the end of finishing the lyrics, she'd reached a point where she was maybe being a little bit more reflective on the work that had gone into it so far and, and everything that that meant to her, definitely from a point of view of lyrics and and the sort of things that were cropping up as she read back through um, through what she'd written. I think ultimately whenever you're working on something like an album or just a, a larger body of work, there's always going to be themes and patterns that emerge within it and, and across it. And I think she looked at an even bigger picture to just one album and kind of felt that there was a progression between the three. Um, and at least that maybe whatever came after this one would have to be something different. So yeah, it was, it was to answer the question more concisely, it was towards the end of it. It wasn't anything that was decided at the start of writing the record. It was very much something that was um, stumbled upon a little bit later down the line. Mm. We spoke about this before and um, I believe she said that grievances came from a dark place and that was about reflection and then Time Will Die was about letting mm -hmm. go and this record is more about renewal and rebirth. I mean, sharing as much or as little as you want to, how, can can you expand on that? I know you sort of um, discussed the lyrics with Eva and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, speaking a bit from the perspective of the new record, certainly, I think there is this sense of renewal and rebirth and ultimately change that comes with this. Mm. I think taking it right back to the start of when we would have started writing this, there's been big changes that have occurred in everyone's lives, really. I mean, Eva moved to another country and got married. I don't really think it gets much bigger than that in terms of changes. Yeah, it's huge. And even suppose little things for, for the rest of us. I mean, Chris moved to London, Al joined the band. Maybe it was all turning to 30 that did it. I don't know. It's, um, it's just one of those things where you sort of hit these milestones and not necessarily reevaluate, but come at things from a slightly different perspective. And I think certainly maybe speaking more like from a tonal perspective, Eva wanted this record to feel more positive um, from a lyrical perspective anyway. And I know that might sound, it's, I, I find it kind of, it's a hard thing to talk about lyrics being positive when, you know, there's songs on a record like, like Drip as an example, um, which is just like yeah. super brutal and dark and industrial and, and heavy to like to listen to. But I think for Eva, and I mean, I'm going to take words that she's used in other interviews that we've done mm. just so that, you know, I'm pulling it from somewhere. Um, she said that she wanted it to feel more positive because on previous records, maybe she'd put a bit too much of herself into it and left a bit too much on the page. And I think ultimately mm. you need to leave a, some of yourself for you. Um, it, it's it's a difficult thing to to be so sort of confessional with lyrics and then have to relive that a lot when you're performing. Um, and I think yeah. she approached writing this in a slightly different sense, just to just to go a bit easier on herself, really. So did you have those ideas of wanting it to be a more positive record before going into the writing? Um, was that something that you were going in with, you know, before anything was put to tape or before any demos were made? Or, or was that something that came about as a part of the writing? Yeah, I think like we don't put a massive emphasis on what we want something to be before we start writing it. I think you, mm. you kind of limit yourself too much by doing that. The start of writing a new album is such a like organic, natural thing. 
And then before you know it, it's kind of coupled with a, a few ideas and then other people sort of bring it in. And before you know it, the kind of the music itself is kind of snowballing in a direction that you can't really change. And it's just, it, it goes that way. Like there really is very, like almost intentionally, like very limited, like prior um, thought into what, what you know, to, to what we want to write or how we want to write. I would think that would be just too restrictive. Literally the first heavy song that we wrote on this album was drip and i remember it being like months and months and months after we finished time will die because every time i picked up a guitar i made it basically i was writing things that sounded like another song that should have been on that record and not enough time had passed mm. and then just after enough time you kind of and especially like stopping playing guitar for a bit and then picking it up again you kind of come out completely fresh and your hands are going in areas that they were before and it's like different mm becomes muscle memory doesn't it yeah yeah if, if you're not totally careful. it's very easy to get bogged down that sort of stuff but with with drip and writing that song that was kind of the first yeah the the first door that we kind of went through with this and then that basically opened up a load of others james had done uh, written most of closer at this point um which i guess i think you've said james is kind of like the most similar it's not very similar at all to time will die but kind of the most similar because i think you wrote that fairly recently after but um yeah as soon as you kind of do that and you start unlocking outdoors and just this whole new world of like stuff that you can do kind of opens up and you just kind of go in <laughs> and it's, that's kind of how it starts really not any premeditated thoughts as to what we want it to be before it's going drip's a very interesting place to start um it's actually smack bang in the middle of the record but you know we can do what we like here so the uh sheer sort of the sheer oppression of that song quite recently i reviewed you guys for metal hammer magazine and i described it as uh in, it was like skynet coming down and like destroying the world kind of thing it, it it's it starts with like a minute and a half worth of these quite unusual sounds and things which i don't think you know you mentioned the word industrial james mm -hmm. i don't think they are typical Rolo Tomasi. So where did that start from? Was that the beginning point of the writing for that song or did it start with something else? Like, where did that come from? I think the intro was added fairly late on, I mm. think, in the, terms okay. of the writing for that. So I think that was almost like one of the last things that we added. Like yeah. I personally, I don't know what it is about intros, like especially when we do live shows and stuff, like I feel like you kind of have free reign to do stuff that you wouldn't probably do within your band, but it can still kind of like work together. So like quite often, for example, for like set intros, we've had like film quotes in and like weird like warp strings and all the stuff that we probably wouldn't put in a record, but actually they're quite fun to put together and quite in. But I think after writing uh, most of the kind of work around that song, it just felt like it did need something like that yeah. to kind of like build up before, before something came in. Like we just didn't really think that it did it justice just dropping into kind of the first riff and it felt like okay maybe this is like what we do live is, is a good is a good kind of uh opportunity to kind of do something like that and i think we kind of just slowly wanted to i mean it's, it's like a pretty intense song like it, it is kind of like quite overwhelming in a way so we just wanted something that would kind of just push that even further and actually make it to the point where you know a minute in of reverse um like symbols and snares and all sorts of stuff like it, it's kind of a bit of a release but not really yeah so i think it came quite late i think it's all about like um it's just about contrasts really and using sound and space to make 
other parts have the maximum impact really and i think we knew that like what chris had written i suppose where the song like the song comes in i suppose a minute and a half was really really heavy and was going to be mega impactful it was just about making sure that it, we got the maximum from that and i think doing something that was almost like scoring a mood for the song ahead of it like i think what chris said about the way we would approach like a live set was um was perfect for it really and we just wanted to do something that was just really disorientating that gave absolutely nothing away about where it was going and just completely set like yeah a tone or a mood to then sort of completely pull you back in and yeah kind of come down like a bit of a jackhammer really um i think i think nathan did quite a lot of work on the intro from memory i think it was very much something that he'd kind of he heard something in the song and was like i've got this idea and took it away and really really worked on worked on it in um in sort of pre-production in in the build-up to the record and it was actually one of the hardest things was trying to sort of recreate what he'd done in logic or garage band in the studio right. to to kind of make it have this the same sort of impact but to be of the kind of quality of a recording that would fit on the record it was something that like he really agonized over towards like the end of the recording session just getting it right like there were certain things that we just couldn't really settle on i mean like i don't really have a problem saying this but there's there's like a particular sample in there and we wanted it to be something like a, maybe a bit more meaningful to the record like maybe it was going to be like uh we were going to take like some lyrics or or find something that really really worked and then record that but nothing really worked the same so we went with what chris had found which i believe was russian train station announcements reversed i was gonna ask you what that chatter was and i wasn't sure if you would reveal it or not i thought well, it might I mean, be this big secret but no yeah. i mean chris if you're happy for that to be left in i am it's kind of funny really like we, we were desperate for it to be something that like was actually a bit more um in keeping with the record but but nothing worked like it just didn't it yeah. didn't sound the same it didn't kind of I think there's something about like the quality of that voice and the recording and everything that just fit. Maybe we were too used to the demo version of that point and it was like a hard thing for us to let go. But yeah, that, that's what that is. Um, it was um, just just a strange sample that, that Chris found and like, yeah, we just couldn't couldn't drop it from it. Like it lost a lot taking it out. Yeah, I that's think we, awesome. we're going to need to redact this for my artistic integrity like straight away, unfortunately. <laughs> um, no, but in all seriousness, I think what you said there, James, like in terms of like, we become so familiar with it, because I think like I pieced together something for it. And it's just like, because it wasn't the same, it was just like, well, that's that's part of the song. Why is it different? Like in the same yeah. way, if like I changed the guitar parts halfway through the song, do you know what I mean? It'd be like, well, it's still the same song, but you're doing something different. It's not right, but it's kind of, it, it becomes such an integral part of the song that it, it is quite a weird thing. And I don't think we've been in that situation in the studio very often. Like mm. um, a lot of the things that we've done that we've done like that in the past, I guess we've created in the studio. So to have mm. something so niche and then trying to replicate that was actually quite a, well, taxing experience for Nathan most particularly, but um, yeah, cool nonetheless. It sounds huge. I mean, it is, it's definitely, even on, I, I think on the initial listens, it really stands out because it's really, it does sound quite different to stuff you've done before. It's, I'm trying to rack my brains. I'm kind of going, when have Rolo sounded 
industrial before and i'm sure there's bits and pieces here and there maybe that i'm forgetting but it, it really does stand out as a moment and it is really oppressive but in a very cool way i mean if arnie does need someone to soundtrack the next terminator film maybe he should be talking to you i don't know um Something that I noticed that is actually in that intro, you have Al doing the snare hits, the sort of bang, 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 mm. bang. And uh, now this is where my nerdy musical brain might be <laughs> reading into things a little bit too much. But I'm curious to put to you, James, there's a few points on the record where you are just riding on one note uh -huh. on the keyboard. Um, for example, the beginning of Mutual Ruin mm -hmm. um, happens in Closer as well. I was wondering, it strikes me as a very minimalist approach to take. Yeah. And I was wondering if there was some sort of easter egg musical intention behind that am i totally reading something into something that isn't there but it's very it was very noticeable to me particularly on a song like mutual ruin where you have just that one piano note that almost goes throughout not quite the whole song but a lot of the song almost like a drone was there any intention behind that or am i just totally seeing things which aren't there it's interesting that you picked up on it and i think the word that i would come back to would definitely be minimal um <laughs> it certainly wasn't an intentional Easter egg to do that. It was more just taking a more minimalist approach to writing generally. Um, I think a lot of the music that I listen to it is just more minimalistic now. And I think the way that I've kind of approached writing generally is just to do, is to do more with less and to really explore like any idea to its full potential I suppose, yeah, it's just something that naturally came in because maybe a lot of what I was just playing in my own time was more was more in tune with that kind of thing. I think the start of Mutual Ruin, it's almost more, it's more intended to almost be sort of percussive and, and rhythmic rather than exactly. any, anything to do with it being about the notes that I'm playing. It's more about yeah. what I'm playing in relation to the drums and the way that everything yeah. kind of drops in when it hits and it's just like a bit of a constant there. It's an unconventional way to approach piano. Yeah, um, you know, they... and it's the same with, with Closer as well, really. That was very much written to be something that was fully exploring uh, a very simple idea to its full potential. I mean, like that song, it's, it's five minutes of the same chord sequence. The chord sequence doesn't mm. change throughout the song. It's just what decorates around it that, that kind of allows it to develop and turn into something else and the way that we kind of play with the dynamics and the arrangement. And it was, for me, that was an exciting challenge was to try and basically to try and faithfully recreate without ripping off the the music and the artists that I like and I think that's kind of you know everything that I've always done personally it's always kind of been like pastiche to what I'm actually listening to it's just been about kind of taking my favorite things and and making something new out of it and yeah for this record it was just sort of more what I was listening to was um was artists and composers that yeah are kind of more minimal and like I listen to a lot of ambient and like droney stuff and that definitely seeps into what we've done as well. And I'm really, really happy to have kind of been able to get it onto the record and to make it work within the context of, of our band without kind of losing anything of our identity. Mm, oh, that is definitely, that has definitely happened 100%. I, I do feel like I've cheated ever so slightly with that question because we have had conversations in the past <laughs> about a lot of those minimalist composers. So, but when I heard it, 
I did immediately think I'm going to think of one that I don't think we have discussed in the past. Like I immediately thought, okay, that sounds like something that Steve Reich might do, mm-hmm. for example, or something like that. Um, and yet it's being put into this context, which I've never heard it put into before, which is really cool and really exciting. And I, I, I really, I really, really responded well to that with Mutual Ruin. I think that's really, really cool in particular. I think another thing, and I don't want to get too tech nerd on this podcast because it's not really the right place to do so, but maybe without getting too into sort of pedals and effects and stuff, and you might not want to give that stuff away anyway, Chris, some of the sounds that you are conjuring on this record are... Well, I'm going to go back to that apocalyptic word. They are absolutely humongous. I'm thinking in particular uh, labyrinthine. Uh, we've already mentioned drip, but uh, prescience as well. I, I mean, the, the driving ryth- rhythm of prescience is, is uh, you know, extraordinary. What were you thinking of in terms of what kind of sounds you wanted to create when you were doing that? I I, I wouldn't normally ask a question like that, but I think they are so massive on this record it almost warranted me putting a question aside just for that alone because they really do sound huge on this album thank you um it feels like a lot of thought was put into them is, is what i'm trying to say you know? it, yeah definitely i think like it's um it's one of those things i think definitely off the back of time will die i like open my eyes just to realize that we can we we can go to like push the extremes right so on something like mutual ruin mm. that you're talking about which essentially starts off with like a really beautiful sounding piano like really nice rhythmical drums yeah. and then i come in with like a boss hm2 swedish um entombed style like <laughs> wolverine blues yeah, style, you know yeah what I mean? so it's just like an absolutely crush it and it's just like you know maybe in the past it would have been like oh that's probably not the right thing to go for does that is that a bit too classic but i mean like as we've kind of moved on like they're actually you, you can do that sort of thing and it does all tie together yeah. it's not going to sound like a different guitarist like it and i think just having that you know other bands and other things that i've worked on like you get a guitar sound a heavy guitar sound for the record and that's that's what you that's what you do and you play like all of the heavy parts of that sound but mm. and i was kind of like it took me a while to want to move away from that and actually to then treat each song as its own thing and we and me and lewis johns like really did do that like the three songs you've mentioned have three completely different tones like all like yes. um have their own thing going on for it but it was just like right what does this song need what sort of heavy song like what sort of heavy parts does this need so there there are some like there is some continuity and there's a lot of a particular heavy sound but the kind of the bits in particularly mentioned of the like almost the embellishments and like we we really went to town on like each song like discussing what sort of tone would would complement it and and yeah just didn't didn't really put any rules in, in place to do that i feel like there's quite a potentially important milestone for you in particular chris september last year marked your 10th year in the band and obviously the amount that rolo have metamorphosized and changed i think in in some ways arguably the the biggest changes have occurred over that period of time and i mean i'm opening this to both of you definitely but in this past 10 years especially as we're looking at uh, a thematic trilogy of sorts of a record how do you feel that evolution has taken place you just said there chris that that's something that those guitar sounds are something maybe you wouldn't have put into the i'd say grievances for example you know not to put words in your mouth or anything but what other things do you think have changed over that 10 year time span so like i remember like and i'll always bring this up the first practice that me and nathan did with james ned um our old drummer 
we we kind of like right how, how do you join a band like you probably like learn a couple of the songs and go through them and then then what happens i remember sitting like well standing in a practice room and james just looked at me and just like so have you got any ideas for new songs i was just like absolutely not no of course i don't like what are you talking about <laughs> so so and australia i think you know was like properly figuring out how this is going to work like what how how we work together as musicians and i think once we did that and we went through that whole process like it made sense and like you know me and nathan were like right okay yeah we can bring a lot to this like we can really like bring our own thing like we don't have to sound like we did in the past like it was it can be a new almost it's a new thing and i think grievances in particular we are kind of like songwriting skills so like we always write music individually like we all go away and write our own parts and stuff but it's the the arrangements and the collective thought behind how a song should go, I think over over that time has got to a point now where it's just we we can really really refine our own work, and I think mm. yeah that is like a massive thing. We we almost like we very very rarely disagree on things, um, just because I think because of the nature of our band, like and and how we write and how how it all works. Like an idea comes to the table because someone knows that it's good, and usually that's enough for it to have its own legs sort of thing. So I think just the way that we write has become really, really refined. We have a clear uh, vision and direction every time we, we write a record or in the process of writing a record. And I think that's definitely, and this record in particular, has like probably been the best it's ever been. I saw you thinking intently there, James, to quite a complex question, to be honest. Um, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I mean, I think so much of it is just chemistry developing over time. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what I was thinking about while you were saying it is whether like chemistry is a natural thing or whether that's something that you have to work at. Mm. Um, and I think we have such great chemistry now because of how much we've worked at it over the years. Mm. I think we're we're really fortunate, like Chris said, to just get on um, <laughs> like and have sort of very similar touchstones in terms of like influences and things like that. I think really importantly, everyone knows what the other person is bringing to the table. They know what they can add. And I think over the years, the thing we've just become really good at is just being, I know that this is quite a clinical word to use with it, but just being efficient um, in the way that we work. And I think a lot of that is maybe down to the fact that, you know, we haven't always lived in the same city. Um, There's always kind of been like slight, not hurdles, but like things in the way of us being able to sort of be able to, you know, just get in a room together and jam and like music happens. It's, you know, there's, there's there's always been a slightly more calculated way, the logistics of the way that we write music. I don't want to say that there's a calculated approach to the way that we write, it's just the logistics of doing the writing. Yeah. And I think over time we've just, like Chris said, refined and, and improved that. Um, and it has just been sort of like, yeah, just a big growing and, and learning process. Like 10 years is a long time, but you know, we've, written and recorded four records in that amount of time i think you know i think any more than that and there'd be sort of quality control issues (laughs) yeah yeah, um but like i think we always sort of have left enough time to really digest what we did right and what we could have improved on previous records and and we've just been really lucky that there's always been sort of a slight change or improvement to the almost the always most recent iteration of the band. Like we were really fortunate to get an amazing new drummer join us um, for this record, who's brought something completely different to the table. And I think, you know, the aim is always to do something different. I want to say the word different rather than better because it's, it's not, you know, 
it's not for us to say whether it's better or not, but ultimately we want to at least be doing something different at least. And with different people, we're going to get different results. And we're really lucky that Al came in at a really pivotal point to sort of mm. save the last record and add something really crucial to this record. Yeah, you could, he really makes his mark quite astonishingly on this album, mm. I think. Um, all those sort of whipper cracks, snare, they're almost like snaps and everything, you know, even the simple stuff and the really complex stuff that you're even more well known for, or historically anyway. But uh, yeah, he really, really does make his mark on this album 100%. You were both talking about refinement there, which led me to think about experimentation and how last time I spoke to you both, you're talking about how the pandemic had actually proved to be quite a good thing in a sense for the making of this record in that it allowed you more time to go into the details and maybe take a few more risks or maybe experiment a little bit more. Are there any kind of those sorts of experimentation things uh, stories or ideas that you can tell me about that came about through having more time i don't think there was like anything too crazy unless i'm wrong i think it was all pretty pg do you know what i mean i think it was just like <laughs> i wasn't trying to get solicitous on you, <laughs> do you know what I, mean? I, I mean i think you've read something into that question which i didn't you know intend i'm not getting <laughs> i'm not getting top yeah. shelf <laughs> I'd, I'd love to say that you know we just went on like an acid trip and locked away in like a studio somewhere and something amazing happened. Yes. Did it did. Like, okay. just went like I, I'm not suggesting you went Evil Dead or anything like that. I'm just saying. Um, so I mean, when we talked about it, uh, oh god, this is going to sound really tame now that we've brought that up. But like running <laughs> microphones across piano strings and stuff like that was something yeah. that came up as an example. Well, Chris, Some stuff like that. So Chris doesn't remember that because he wasn't there on that day. Okay. But, um, yeah. So we had a bit of we had a bit of extra time and we'd set this piano like sort of a prepared piano up and we just like just picked up a bunch of tools and were like playing with the strings and like yeah it's just things like that really i think it was kind of just adding layers and, and additional textures and i mean you know when we talk about having extra time it was things like we were able to go and record some piano at a different studio this time around it's, i suppose it's just little almost luxuries that haven't always been possible and I mean that largely came about because when we'd booked the studio time there was always the intention for Eva to come back and record as part of our session mm -hmm. she wasn't able to do that she had to book yeah. separate studio time so we ended up with like an extra week um where we would normally been doing vocals and that meant that firstly we could kind of not take it easy but there was a way more relaxed approach to everything we knew we weren't working to such a strict schedule because I mean in the past when we've been in it's like every hour counts and every day is really crucial um mm. but this time around you know we could spend a couple of days really really making sure that the reverse cymbal swells at the start of drip were perfect and that like the kinds of distortion used on the organ at the start of almost always were exactly right and you know all the programmed industrial electronic drums that you know you can hear when you listen to the labyrinthine with headphones on that they were all exactly right and just playing around with different synthesizers and patches and i suppose it's just those details that you don't necessarily no notice them on first listen but if you took them yeah. away from the record they're the detail that elevates this for me from from anything we've done previously like we worked so closely with lewis to really go in on the production detail on this record we we had the opportunity to really make sure that the songs were ready 
to do that. Whereas in the past, I feel like we've gone in and we've recorded songs and there's been like, well, you know, there's 10 songs and 10 songs makes an album. This time around, it was like, we're going to make a record and it's going to be produced and it's going to, it's going to really, really go places that we've not done before. And so much of that was because we had, we had the extra time. Um, there was no external pressure to finish it because there was a pandemic and we had no sort of touring commitments. Mm. And I think that definitely sort of, um, it unburdened us from a lot of the things that normally can be a bit, I don't know, impressive is way too dramatic a word to use, but like just things that get on top of you when you, when you're recording. Yeah, yeah, that's understandable. I, I think um, the, the manner of the sheer breadth of the record as well and, and how you kind of make that work over an album, you've got parts which are so ambient and parts which are so heavy. And this has been the case with Rolo for at least a couple of records now, but it's been pushed even further as it's you know it's the cliche of the heavier parts are heavier, the lighter parts are lighter, but that's very much true in this case. And was there a difficulty in making all of those parts coalesce together in a way that seemed um, seamless and seemed to work? You know, I mean, putting a song like Drip alongside Closer, which is exactly where they are in the record, on paper seems mad, but actually it works brilliantly well. Were there challenges there? I think that's like a really good, um, that's the big lesson from um, Time Will Die for me. Like, okay. that. that's just like, you can because a lot of the time like you can still sound like the same band with and without distortion right and then mm. everyone kind of knows that but you can really really push that and it's just like if you heard those two songs that you mentioned like independently i think you'd you could still figure out that it was this kind of same band and that i is like kind of hard to put your finger on as to why why that is like whether it's just because of the overall production or you can hear the kind of musicianship in it or whatever it is but that is another thing that just opened so many doors because that is almost like the thing that probably people have like commented on most right in with time will die and to get people's feedback to be like you know what? that's that's so cool that you went into like this super clean bit and then the next song is this and like people really enjoy that so being able to push that what that also does is just open up the complete spectrum in between that to like to to do so many different things and it just means that we could be so much more creative and bring in so many more ideas that perhaps wouldn't have worked because they didn't fit this kind of narrow smaller field that we were kind of to work within it was kind of no idea was off the table and that was where the kind of refinement came in because by doing that it's kind of a blessing and a curse right because you're giving yourself more things to kind of go wrong on to not be right because mm. there's just so much to choose from so like coming back to your, kind of your previous question a little bit is that in terms of the having more time not being able to record not being able to write together and stuff meant that we me particularly um i found this that i could really go and like look at every idea that i kind of like had done in detail and be like well does that kind of match like is that too similar is that not similar enough and like really really think about my own individual parts before bringing it to the rest of the band to be like right here's another idea that i've got mm. Uh, it's really it's cool that people like react so well to that and it just gives us yeah like i say like more of a field to play from really i think as well i mean not to come in here and answer my own question like i'm part of the band or something um but i, I think also it comes down to identity we talk about identity on the show quite a lot and i think if you have a very very strong identity as a band then you are able to go to more places without it sounding like it's gonna go and you know the reason the only reason i say that is because if it comes from me that might sound a little bit uh 
egotistical coming from you too so i'm just saying i'm just saying it in my opinion i think it comes down to that fact that that identity is there and yeah you're absolutely right chris like it's blindingly obvious that it is the same band even though you're doing completely different things on those songs and it's remarkable to me how broad this record is and yet there's no point ever where you kind of go oh it sounds like loads of different bands you know mm. it sounds like the product of a band who listened to loads of different things who listened to a really broad breadth of, of different things but it never it always sounds like the same five individuals and i think that's um i think that's a brilliant brilliant thing thanks very much you're very welcome um I, I, I'm, I'm going to finish off with um, a, a couple of questions regarding sort of, I suppose, outsider influences and things like that. Uh, I, I feel like Time Will Die had probably the most enthusiastic critical response that a Rolo record has received so far. Um, you're both nodding away there, so that's good. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think generally that's probably the, the perception, and. Um, I was wondering how that sort of thing affects you. Does it affect you going into writing this next record? Does it give you a confidence that you didn't have before? Do you try to ignore that stuff? What sort of effect does the accolades and the and getting higher places in album of the year charts and all that sort of thing have on the band? I mean, I think we were surprised and pleased at how much people liked the last record generally and kind of most crucially for us the reaction that it got at shows mm. i think that was the sort of big thing for me was just seeing that it's more than anything we've done just people that were coming to see us play had a real connection with it more so than anything before whether that was sort of the physical response or them singing or you know that sort of thing i think ultimately it all gave us just more confidence and sort of courage in our convictions of the way that we approach writing and I suppose we felt just great about doing whatever we wanted going in like I think it really felt that at that point we like you said I think we found an identity and I think at that point you just become way more comfortable in your own skin and nothing feels risky mm. that was kind of what I, I took from it. it was just you know what like we can do what we want and you know, we really need to just kind of take full advantage of that and not be overwhelmed by it. Because, you know, there is the sort of risk of like, I think Chris has kind of alluded to it, that, you know, these things can be a blessing and a curse, right? Like if you write music yeah. with no rules, I mean, that's awesome. But like at the same time, like where do you draw the line? Like where do you stop? How do you make that work cohesively? Yeah. That is still sort of the main challenge. It is trying to make it feel like an album and a, a cohesive uh, piece of work. But, um, but yeah, I think the short answer is, it felt good. It was nice. Obviously, like we, you know, want to play to as many people as possible, reach as many places, and it's just a cool thing. Yeah, we're we're, we're really really happy that you know the positive response that it got critically maybe opened us up to more people, which in turn allowed us to play different shows, different festivals, and in turn reach more people. Like it's all part of a process. I think there's a lot of moments on this record that you can hear that confidence as well. There's more confidence in the in the more ambient tracks i think you know there's there's a lot of um that there's quite a lot of quite ambient songs on this record almost always closer stumbling the end of eternity i mean the end of eternity gets fairly heavy towards the end but those are four songs out of the 10 that i would say are broadly in the ambient mold and it feels like that that 
it's just expanding all the time. This idea of what Rolo Tomasi can be is constantly expanding and constantly changing and evolving without ever losing the core of what Rolo Tomasi is. You can still, even if you go back to hysterics, you can still hear an element of what made that record charged in what you're doing now it's much more refined and 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 it is much better now <laughs> much much better but you, you can still hear the through line you know really clearly i think well finally just to bring it back to my original question the talk of this being a trilogy and all that sort of thing and the end of a trilogy sort of indicates a kind of closing of one chapter and hopefully the opening of a new one it's obviously far too early i imagine to ask about the direction of new material or anything like that so i'm not going to do that specifically but does this mean that whenever you go into writing record number seven it will be wow do you think you will be going in a new direction like something totally new does that indicate that or am i reading into that too much or have you not thought about it at all so funnily enough, the other day I like <laughs> opened up a logic file and then just called it Rolo Tomasi Album 7, took a photo of it and sent it to everyone and was just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it, the, the wheels have slowly started to move on that. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, it takes a hell of a long time. It's always just kind of like, that's kind of like a bit of a watershed moment. Um, yeah. So, yeah, like kind of what I was saying is just like, he's just so, I don't know how we could, like if we, let, let's say me and James want to write an acoustic, we want this next album to be acoustic album. Do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. just like, I just don't think we could do it. I was just like, it just becomes its own thing. And that sounds like a bit ambiguous, right? But it, mm-hmm. it really does. Like p- people piece together this kind of puzzle. And then before you know, like before you can kind of see what it looks like. And it's like, you hear a bit here, like there's a, a piano part that James has written, there's a heavy part that I And then it just take, it really does take on its own momentum and its own life and just kind of goes in the direction it goes in so i think it's organic basically it's, yeah it started I, I you know maybe maybe we will sit down and think about it but it's kind of worked so far so maybe maybe we just stick to what we know <laughs> yeah, i'll be completely honest in that i've not thought about it once um i'm very much <laughs> that's fair enough. yeah no i just really want to enjoy this record like we put a lot into it yeah. and i'm really proud of it and i think so much of how I approach writing the next record comes on the back of how touring the newest one has felt. And we've not done that yet. So I kind of, I'm really, really focused on the shows we've got coming up next month and performing this new set of songs. And I kind of want to see what what we take away from that um, and how these kind of songs just feel when we're playing them in a room with people. And, and I'll kind of go from there, really. Hmm. Again, it's about like, you know, old hobbits die hard and it, it, you know, that's, it's worked in the past, so. Yeah, why change the winning formula? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's an extraordinary record. You already know what I think of it. It's where Myth Becomes Memory, out on Monarch on the 4th of February. You also just mentioned the tour dates that you have coming up with Pupil Slicer, who are a favourite on this podcast as well. And uh, yeah, well, I hope to see you at one of those dates uh, then. Thank you so much, Chris and James, for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us. Nice one. Thanks, man.